Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Samuel! Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are talking about the Gospels. This is Gospels part 130. Last week we moved away from Jesus's, you could say, farewell discourses, priestly blessings, prayer over his <clears throat> disciples and conversation with his Father in heaven. Um, and then they moved to the Garden of Gethsemane and he takes the takes his disciples there. He asks them to sit and pray while he goes off with his closest disciples and other translate in other accounts it says pray that you don't enter temptation and we get to see this beautifully vulnerable moment with Jesus where he is talking to God the Father and he he is troubled sorrowful even to the point of death um, yeah. and he you see the humanness within himself in a reluctantness to want to go through with this suffering and unrightful justice that's going to be enacted to him by the Jewish leadership. And he's asking God, if there's any way that this cannot happen, please. But then we, we get the, we called it like one of the biggest moments in all of scripture where he reverses the curse of Genesis three in the garden at the beginning right. of the of the scriptures where he says not my will but your will be done he surrenders control to let god define what was good for him and for the world and for humanity and the story as a whole and I, that's just awesome that we get yeah. we get this divine reversal going on with jesus choosing his father's will in this moment that would have been so difficult to have done given the circumstances. Yeah, this is, it's like, this is the money. This is, this is where it all turns. And it's, it's an amazing part of the story and stuff that we just, I think a lot of people never really account for or think about or something. Jesus had his own will. And it did not agree <laughs> with God's will. And he chose God's will over his own. And as you said it, he allowed God to define good. He didn't do it himself. And that, that is the story of the garden. They, that knowledge of good and evil is more like, I wish they'd have called the tree determining good and evil for yourself, mm -hmm. because that's really more what it is. But Anyway, yeah, it's a great part of the story, but we're not done. We, we talked about it like, oh, it was such a pivotal moment. He, a divine reversal. Look at what he did. He's going to do it two more times. Hmm. It's amazing. But let's take it one step at a time. Let's pick up reading in Luke chapter 22, verses 43 and 44. It says this, And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, 
If you were looking at the okie dokie notes, you would see that that's kind of in a lighter color. The reason I did that is because I, I need to say two things about it so you kind of get the right picture. Number one, those verses do in fact appear in a lot of manuscripts. So it's not as if they don't show up a lot. But in some of the more significant collection of manuscripts, those are, are, that are you know considered the most reliable or most complete or earliest or whatever, okay, these verses don't appear in a lot of those. So they're kind of, I don't know, there's a, a little bit of skepticism about them. We aren't going to make any judgment. I mean, a lot smarter people spend a lot more time with a lot more information than us. We'll just talk about them as they exist. But just want you to know, there is at least some question about whether or not this should really even be in your Bible. Whatever. We're good with it. So the question would be, okay, so so did an angel appear to him in the middle of this story? I mean, another point is, it's only Luke that says it. Now, the answer is, well, we don't know. I mean, how would we know? We weren't there. Does it somehow ruin the story if an angel did appear or if he didn't appear? No, it doesn't matter either way. It adds, I think, more to the imagery of how troubled and sorrowful that he was. It adds to our image of his humanity. And that's all good. But then you also ask maybe this question, if an angel did show up and strengthen Jesus, you know, like what was he strengthening him for? And of course, we could make the obvious jump. Well, come on, he's got to go through the suffering and death. Okay, yeah, true. But in this particular instance, in this particular place, he's actually strengthening him so that he might continue in prayer. In fact, so that he might pray more earnestly, which is funny because what's he praying, Samuel? Like, what is the message of what he's praying? He's praying that not his will, but God's will. Well, yes, there is that. And there's also the please take this cup from me part. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And so the angel is strengthening him. And you got to think, well, it's I mean, it's kind of sort of for both sides. I mean, if he was just going to agree with God's will outright, he wouldn't need to be praying at all. So in some sense, that angel is strengthening him while he is, quote unquote, negotiating with God or something, right? But he needs to, ultimately, he needs to stay the course. He needs to, as you said, be obedient to his father, which is another way of saying he needs to love him. And when we imagine Adam and Eve making that wrong choice, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but Samuel, tell me how you feel. Don't we often see them as being, I don't know, somewhat casual or nonchalant or something? I mean, their choice in the garden didn't seem like this big, heavy moment. They just saw it. They liked it. They took it. They ate it. Boom. End of the end of the good story, right? Mm-hmm. Jesus's work to reverse all of that, well, it appears to be agonizing, sorrowful, troubling. It's utter anguish. And lest we forget, in this moment, he had the fullness of the Spirit resting on him. And it was still agonizing, sorrow, sorrowful, troubling, utter anguish, right? 
this is a big deal. It was hard for Jesus to be obedient even unto death. Now, just to say this out loud, I hear so many people talk about this, and it's, it's I don't know, it's almost embarrassing, but let's not go there. He does not say, the text does not say, that Jesus actually sweat blood. We don't have to go into stories about how you get stress out and your tiniest of capillaries burst and, you know, all these other stories that you hear. It doesn't say that he sweat blood. It says that his sweat became like great drops of blood, which is to say they were falling rapidly from him as if the sweat was being pumped from his body the same way that blood is pumped from your body when you are wounded, okay? So I'm just saying, could it have been that he got so stressed out and, and everything that he sw- and blood actually began to be... Sure. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying the text doesn't say that. His sweat was like great drops of blood. So just pointing that out. And then let's not forget, Jesus isn't only concerned for himself. I mean, he knows, well, we'll see in a moment. For now, I'm going to say at least some of what is to come. The destruction of Jerusalem, the exile, which I, mean, I don't know how much he knew of this, 2,000 years of it now, etc. To, to use a recurring theme, taking over as a conquering king, the thing that he's been like telling everybody, no, 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 that's not what I'm here for. It probably didn't sound too bad to Jesus, right? Like right in this moment, you know what I mean? But Jesus... I mean, he's thinking about what this means to not just the Jewish people, but all believers across all time. So it's just, I don't know, the whole thing's a big deal. But what do you got there, Samuel? Yeah, and I think that this is going to come up more as we continue this scene of Jesus remaining in the garden and continuing to pray. But I think that this is a perfect example of Jesus being in a situation that we can relate to where he is praying for something, a request, and the text does not say that God responds to him in the previous section or that he right. gets any kind of answer. It's almost like he's when he's when he's saying, like, remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will, that's almost as if he is trying to remind himself or he's he's preaching the truth to himself in that moment of, <laughs> right. I don't know, the temptation or internal battling of wills, whatever. Yeah. And then here in the section that we just went through right now, it says he's being in agony and praying more earnestly. And then we get that visual picture of his sweat. It's like that that prayer in the previous section didn't seem to help. And he's having to continue to wrestle and to battle. And I don't know. I just think it's a good way to relate to for for us to feel like God slash Jesus is empathetic with us whenever we are in situations where we're praying for things that seem to be in alignment with the heart of God, yet we don't see the fruition of that for whatever reason. Like Jesus had to go through that as well. Yeah, and this is what makes him that perfect mediator, 
between man and God because he fully knows what it is to be a man and he fully knows what it is to be God and he can he can play that that in between role it, it's so good so good all right so what else we got here uh, Matthew chapter 26 verses 40 and 41 Similarly, Mark chapter 14, verses 37 and 38, and Luke chapter 22, verses 45 and 46. We'll go ahead and read from Matthew this time. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Okay. Yeah, this is where, you know, another one of those things where you go, come on now, Peter, the other, they, they were good guys. Don't be too quick to judge. At some point, and, and, you know, from this text, other texts, whatever, it seems to be about an hour that Jesus was praying. And these guys, they fell asleep. And Jesus stops praying, and he comes back to check on him. Now, remember, Samuel, how many people were there with him close by? Uh, wasn't it three? Yeah. He had left the, the main group, brought those three with him, and then he even went on a little farther himself. So he comes back to check on the three. It's good for your mental picture. And he finds them all sleeping. And now, now Luke says that Jesus spoke to them all, but Matthew and Mark say he only spoke to Peter. And it's kind of that, (laughs) wait, what? Seriously? You're asleep? You couldn't watch for an hour? And it's like, stay awake or to to be on watch or or whatever. Do you remember, Samuel, it wasn't that long ago, we had been going through some parables and the, the, the real focus, the real message in them, a number of them, like time after time after time was to stay awake. Remember that? Mm-hmm. And so here we are. And now now Luke says that they were sleeping for sorrow. What does that mean? Well, it, it's kind of like saying, look, they were exhausted from the mental and emotional stress, the grief that they were going through, etc. Now, I think that that's reasonable. I mean, obviously, Luke says it, you know, take that, whatever. Now, some would also add that, hey, let's remember, practically speaking, they had just had a big meal. They had just had a lot of wine. And and I don't think that this can be discounted. These poor guys, I mean, what would they normally do after a big Passover meal? They would pass out, so to speak, fall asleep. I mean, that's what you do. And here they are. Jesus is like, no, you guys need to keep praying. I don't know. It's it, Luke. It's just he's offering, you know, something good, important, whatever. Now, there's a couple of ways to view Jesus speaking to Peter only. And, and that's assuming that that's the accurate version. Okay. Because we, you know, we don't have complete agreement across the Gospels. No big surprise anymore there. Peter remained the favorite. And Jesus was calling him to live up to his potential. So that's one way. You could look at it like that. Second way, Peter 
was going to be the greatest disappointment, and Jesus was chiding him to try to get him to snap out of it. Well, that's Oof. another way to look at it, right? <laughs> and, you know, it could be anything in between or whatever. We don't know. But you can at least imagine two very, very different motivations, but they're all seeking the same end. They want Peter to kind of rise up, rise to the occasion, you know, that kind of stuff. Now, don't be too hard on these guys. And, I mean, we probably have acted the same in, in any reasonably similar situation. We certainly would. I don't know. Just give these guys a break. Now, all of the accounts agree that they should be watching and praying that they not enter into temptation. Remember before, we didn't really have that kind of instruction, but now after Jesus has been away, he's come back, found them sleeping. Now everybody's in agreement. This is what you need to be doing, praying that they don't enter into temptation. And we spoke of this temptation a little bit before. Maybe it's things like to to walk away, abandon him, or or you know, just to fall away. Not even, it feels like a less of a proactive choice and almost passive or something. Uh, maybe it's to deny him. You know, that's what we hear about Peter, etc. All kinds of things. But as we see here, it's also that temptation to sleep or slumber, to not remain vigilant and awake and at watch and all of that. That is equally important, and that speaks so much to what, Samuel, you and I experience in modern Christianity here in America. People, they seem pretty con- convinced that, hey, no, I'm sticking with God no matter what, but they seem to live lives, their Christian lives seem to be filled with sleep or slumber, not awake, not watchful, whatever. It, the point is, it just doesn't take much of a mirror for us to see this in ourselves if we're looking honestly. So there's that. And then Jesus, I guess he kind of comes around with maybe a little bit of empathy or encouragement or whatever. He says that, hey, you know, in some sense, Peter, I get it. Your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. And I mean, come on, Samuel, is this not the great summary of the human condition? Mm -hmm. Even at the best of times? In this statement, I don't know. I see Jesus empathizing with them. He knows they really do want to be just the best followers they can be. But he also knows what it's like when your physical body just wants to shut down, to drift off into sleep. He doesn't like it. I mean, he really does seem a bit perturbed, but he gets it. And again, it makes him the best kind of mediator. For what it's worth, I think the spirit being spoken of here, you know, your your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. I believe that this is talking about each human's immortal spirit, the thing that we have that is distinct from all the other created animals or whatever. It's the neshama, not the nephesh, just to throw that out there. But I don't know, Samuel, what do you got there? Yeah, I just find it interesting that there's this element right now of rest or physical, emotional tiredness or exhaustion that Jesus is asking them to fight against in this moment when, like normally in their culture, the evening and 
their whole the way that their day is oriented the nighttime the beginning is is seen as the beginning of their day and starts with rest and so right. it, i don't know it it showcases the seriousness of this moment that they are in for jesus to be saying like i know this is not the norm but you all need to fight this even though yeah. it's not your custom because of what's going on and then i wish i, I tried looking up the reference while you were going through this section, but I couldn't find it, but I guess I can paraphrase it. I remember reading somewhere in some extra-biblical Jewish text like the Midrash or the Talmud where the rabbis were saying that there is like merit in people foregoing some amount of sleep either in the morning or at night, both to rise up early to study Torah or to stay up late to study Torah. I don't know. I just think that kind of visual comes into play here with his disciples, like literally fighting for the Torah made flesh in this moment in this garden. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's good. And think about it. When would you, in your normal everyday life, you know, let's say you have some sort of pattern, you know, you go to bed around a certain time each day, you get up around a certain time each day, maybe it's because of work or this or that or whatever. But when would you go outside of that pattern? Well, when when there was something that required it, something where something was at stake that was more important than your normal everyday pattern, right? And then when you you take that, you, you sort of roll that into, well, what are we even talking about here? Well, my goodness, what is at stake here, Samuel? In in everything that we're talking about, it's life. And death. And, you know, some people could hear that and and think, oh my gosh, you guys are exaggerating. Well, I mean, we're not saying every single moment that you continue to live that you have to live as though it's a life and death situation. I mean, that's, you know, you wouldn't survive that. (laughs) Your life wouldn't be very long. But bringing that idea into the way that you approach everything in your life, understanding that even the simplest thing, when I'm kind to someone who, let's just say, honestly doesn't deserve it, okay, but I do it because what is at stake is life and death. Maybe for me, maybe for them. And, you know, it just, I don't know, the whole thing. But you're right, this this is a big moment, and he's, he's calling them to it, and they're, <laughs> let's just say they're falling down on the job. Yeah, well, and... I mean, if I'm honest with myself, I can see my struggle with trying to carve out time, being intentional with getting in the scriptures or praying, whatever, like, you know, in the mornings before work, if I try to set an alarm earlier and then, you know, I I have that internal struggle with this, like, sleep feels and sounds so much better right now than, <laughs> yes, you know, <laughs> sacrificing that to try to connect with the creator of the universe or at night, like after you've worked all day and just like, I don't want to exert myself even more, like, and then, you know, I'll end up doing meaningless things like, you know, scrolling on your phone or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It's, it's practical and applicable to us. This section is because I think that we fight that quote unquote, the phrase of falling asleep 
more than we realize even in our 21st century yeah. lives and culture and stuff. Yeah, yeah. If you don't make it quite so literal as if it's only talking about when we go unconscious, you know. Yeah, we, yeah, it's a big yeah. deal. All right, next section. Uh, Matthew chapter 26, verses 42 and 43. Also Mark chapter 14, verses 39 and 40. I'm going to go ahead and keep going with Matthew version here. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. <laughs> so, so Jesus goes off to pray a second time. Now, this time, do we know if it's similarly like an hour or whatever? Eh, we don't get really any real indication in the text itself, but you can imagine it's probably, probably something similar, right? And Mark says he just prays the same words. Matthew basically agrees, but he, he actually offers the words. And there's, there's a little bit of a subtle change. If the only way to get this cup, and that, that cup is his suffering, uh, his death, if the only way to get this cup to pass from me is to drink it, meaning to, to actually go through with it, well, then your will be done. Jesus, I mean, it's not like he doesn't get what God's asking, whatever, it, totally there. Jesus is spending some real time and energy with God trying, and let's just be honest, he's trying to get out of this. Yeah, don't act like that's not happening. It's a real thing. And again, this is just blatant humanity. I mean, it's amazing to see it in Jesus like this. And again, we may as well point it out as we go. Now, this is the second time we see, uh, let's call him the second Adam, reversing what happened in the garden. So you see it in the Adam and Eve story. They make the mistake one time. You're going to see Jesus now for the second time reversing that mistake. Super cool. Now, interesting little side point. This is something that came up. I was reading some stuff from Daniel Lancaster at FFOZ. And he points out that there is some tradition surrounding all of this prayer. And it, it has this idea that Jesus' prayer, it includes the idea of saving his life. Jesus wanted to live. Okay, nothing crazy or weird about that. We see that, right? Yet, we also know that he's completely, fully aware that his suffering and death is what is required. I want to live, but I know that I must die. So therefore, this, this tradition, what they're, what they're saying is, well, it seems as though maybe Jesus's prayer is actually including the idea of resurrection. Knowing that he wasn't going to be saved from dying, but his, his prayer is reaching even beyond that to the idea that, that death won't prevail. Now, you could take that or leave it. You might think that has merit or not or whatever, but I think it's really interesting just to mention while we're in this, because it's a, 
it's kind of a cool viewpoint. Uh, now, the tradition, though, and, and this is, it's kind of captured in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. So Samuel, read that for us. So let's see if we can see it in there. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Yeah. Yeah, so the key phrase there is to him who was able to save him from death. Now, you could look at that and say, well, God could have changed his mind. He was able to save him from death. Or you could turn it around and back to this tradition that that I got from Daniel Lancaster. You could say, well, no, God was able to allow him to go through the experience of death, and yet he was able to uh, resurrect him from it. So there's victory over death, right? And so, I mean, you could see it both ways. I'm, I'm just saying, I think if it's kind of a cool tradition, not that you have to hold it as, no, this is absolutely fact and true, but it's a neat side story that just adds to the whole imagery. Now, <laughs> sadly, Jesus comes back to find the three sleeping yet again. Now, on one hand, the text explains, man, their eyes were, oh, they were heavy. They were very heavy. They were excessively sleepy. Kind of, you know, kind of giving them a little cover. <laughs> but Jesus, I don't know, he kind of must have said something again because I didn't read this. It's in Mark's version. It says, they did not know what to answer him. So again, you get that. He must have said something, right? They didn't know what to answer. So, I mean, it could have been a simple thing. Guys, why are you sleeping? And then <laughs> I always imagine my kids, you ask a very simple and straightforward question, and they give that most dreaded reply, I don't know. <laughs> 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 they didn't know what to answer him. So, I don't know. It's rough. I mean, it seems so easy to just bust their chops, but, you know, give them, give them a little room. What you got, Samuel? I'm really intrigued by this idea that you said that his prayer could possibly include the idea of resurrection for him in terms of saving his life, wanting to live. Why I find that intriguing is because... Jesus aligns most closely with Pharisaic thinking within Judaism, and yeah. the resurrection of the dead was a common thought uh, yeah. of you know the future reality for human beings in the kingdom and the world to come. So, huge part of it. So, if the, if this prayer is including the idea of resurrection, it's like I'm trying to fit that with Jesus's seeming already understanding that that is going to be a reality for him and for all of humanity like is it meaning like resurrection happening sooner rather than you know him going to the grave like how all the rest of humanity does until you know the day of the Lord where there is the mm. resurrection of the dead I, I guess I'm just trying to hash that out if yeah, because it, it just seemed like it came off like resurrection wasn't a possibility, but that was common within their thinking. Yeah, yeah. Again, the the imagery that you would have find 
you would have found in Pharisaic Judaism of this time uh, included resurrection, but to your point, it was more like, yeah, there will be a day. All will be resurrected. And so did Jesus know something different? Did he expect something different? Was, was he asking for something unique and different that wasn't even a part of the story or whatever? It all goes back to, Samuel, I'm, I'm, on one side, I'm totally feeling your question. But on the other side, it just gets back to how much did Jesus know? And boy, really smart people have been arguing about this for a long time. And, you know, it's, it's going to—we'll see as we read further. There, it's going to talk a little bit about that. And, I mean, this is another one of those answers, Samuel, that I can actually give in complete confidence. I don't know. <laughs> well, my, my mind's now going back to, you know, previous episodes that we've already covered in the Gospels where Jesus alludes to this imagery of him being raised from the dead when he— used references like does, doesn't he reference Jonah in terms of being in the belly of you know the the fish for three days and then coming out and then I think yeah. he talks about the um, the destruction of the temple he's like you know tear this temple down and you know I'll raise three it up again I'll in three days so yeah I don't and know just recently just recently he talked about I am going away but mm-hmm. then I will see you again. So yeah, I mean, you look at all those things, and it's like, man, it seems obvious that he knows all of this. So I don't know, what does that do for you in terms of this idea that that he he may have been praying for, please don't make me die right now, or he may have been praying for, look, I get it, I know I'm supposed to die, but dude, you totally got to come through. Mm. You you gotta raise me up, man. Right? I don't know. How does that make you feel about all that? It, yeah, I I don't know. Yeah, it still leaves you with a big I don't know, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's 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 a difficulty. I, again, I think the reason to to include thoughts like this, ideas like this, traditions like this, is because you know what? It, it does. It really makes the picture, the image in your head, more colorful, more detailed, all of it. It's good, but we just got to be careful. You know, we don't act like we know something we don't mm-hmm. know. Uh, it's just, uh, I don't know, but it's super interesting. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Negative. All right. Well, see what else we got. Uh, we're moving on to Matthew chapter 26, verses 44 to 46, and also Mark chapter 14, verses 41 and 42. I'm just going to stick with Matthew. I'm a creature of habit. Here we go. So, leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. And the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Okay, Uh, so uh, just important points. Jesus is going off to pray for a third time. And, I mean, you know, Matthew, even he's tired of writing the same. He just, yep, he says the same words. And you can imagine... (laughs) I don't know. If it were me, it'd be like, Father, 
are you sure <laughs> there is no way out of this? I mean, I'll do it, but I don't want to. You know, are you sure? I, I, how else is he going to say it? What else is there? He's saying the same thing again. And again, how long was he there? You know, was it like an hour-ish each time? We don't know. But in this, we can see Jesus's spirit. And this is important because we've talked a lot about his flesh, right? His humanity, all that. Jesus's spirit is stronger than his flesh, that's a big deal. That's a really big deal. For the third time, the second Adam reverses what happened in the Garden of Eden. His spirit prevails. He chooses God's will over his own. He denies his own flesh, his own will, his own desire, all that, right? So it's a big deal. And it's an example for us. We can't ever forget that. Can't forget that. Remember, the verses in Luke earlier that I said were maybe a little less reliable, I mean, and I'm not saying I know anything more or anything better than anyone else, uh, but it was that angel strengthening him. It kind of feels like this would be the moment that that would be appropriate, you know, that that angel would come. Maybe this third time away in prayer, you know, you could imagine the, the angel coming and and strengthening him finally because, hey, dude, no more time for prayer. You got to get up and do this thing, right? You got to face it. Obviously, I have no evidence for that. I have no reason for saying that. I'm just saying it kind of feels like it would be more appropriate for it to go there, but who knows, whatever. But he comes back again to the three, and they're sleeping again. Now, you don't have to read it this way, but I read it, and I think, you know what? Jesus, again, he seems a little bit perturbed, you know, still sleeping, are we? Hmm? Taking our rest? Hmm? I mean, it's, and then ultimately it's like, you know what? It's enough of this. You guys get up, you catch up on your sleep later. The hour has come. My betrayal is now, it's happening right now. Get up. We've got to go. My betrayer is here. And I mean, honestly, who among us would not have been perturbed? I mean, and again, let's go back. Who's he asking them to pray for, Samuel? Did he say, pray for me because I'm going through stuff? <laughs> pray for themselves. Yeah, yeah. It's like, guys, you are the ones that need help here. I've got my part handled. You need to pray. And they, they won't do it. They're just sleeping. So he's bugged by that. But anyway, we see a quick uh, a quick reference here to the Son of Man again. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners, right? I mean, he could have just as easily said, I am betrayed, but he didn't. Son of Man. And whether that's Jesus saying it so that it, it would sort of be something that we pick up on later, or maybe that's just Mark uh, and, and uh, uh, Matthew's way of saying it, I don't know, but... It's we should be getting that son of man imagery again. This was all planned. This was the scriptures being fulfilled, right? It's important for the story. It relates back to Isaiah and it keeps the reader grounded in what is actually happening right here, right now. He is that suffering servant. What's the other? It takes us back to Daniel, of course. Uh, Anyway, betrayed into the hands of sinners. Now, this is speaking more of, of those who are guilty 
and wicked. Okay, it's not just your run-of-the-mill, no, I'm trying to be faithful, but every once in a while I mess up, therefore I'm a sinner. No, this is like the, the guilty, the wicked. With regard to Israel, they were guilty because they refused God's faithfulness. And that faithfulness was living, walking, breathing in this person of Messiah, this Jesus character. They were refusing God's faithfulness. And not only that, they were keeping most of Israel from him also, right? So, so we're talking about the leadership, the, 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 the elders, the Sanhedrin, all of that, the, the, the priesthood, all that. And they, they weren't just keeping Israel from him. We know, we're not there in the story yet, they're ultimately going to play a role in his death. It's not solely on their shoulders, but they play a role. Now, with regard to Rome, obviously, they were wicked in their role as Babylon. All through your Bible, you've got this idea of Babylon or sometimes Egypt or whatever. Egypt really is just another Babylon. That was the, the those who are rebelling against God, those who are unfaithful, disobedient, all of that. Rome, like other civilizations along the way in history, they were playing the role of Babylon. And they're the ones, I mean, if you want to get like super technical, they're the ones who did the actual killing of Messiah. But, you know, that's not not to throw anybody under the bus. We're just trying to look at detailed facts, whatever. Now, it isn't stated, and it won't be stated, but you got to figure either at this point, okay, maybe I was wrong, and it really isn't just the three. They go to, to all of them. But if it was the three that Jesus came back and woke up this last time, at some point they had to go back and wake up the others as well. And of course, that's making an assumption that they were also sleeping. You know, I mean, if I just think they were, whatever. You can look at it any way you want. But I just wanted to throw that in because we're going to continue on the story, not really knowing what happened to them. So anything on this part, Samuel? Um, yeah, first off, this last thing you said, they probably had to go wake the others as well. Are you meaning the other eight? Okay, because I I, I was trying to get a imagery here because th- at the beginning of this whole section, it says he went with his disciples and then he took the three with him further. So yeah. like in these previous sections of the three times where he's went and prayed and he's come back and he's found them sleeping is it we're not supposed to just be picturing the three sleeping, we're supposed to be picturing all of them? Well, yeah, I guess in my mind what I'm seeing is with the three, we see Jesus going away, coming back and waking him up, going away, come back, waking him up, right, continually. With the eight, my imagination has it as, oh no, uh, after Jesus and the three walked away, they all pretty much fell asleep, and they were just sleeping while this whole thing was going on. But nobody was getting woken up or anything. They were just hanging back there, snoozing. Gotcha. That's the way I imagine it. And is it 100% you know, fact, truth? I don't know. That's just that's the way the text seems to be telling it to me. Mm-hmm. Got any other ideas? No, I, I was just trying to fit all this together on where the two groups of disciples would be and who Jesus is interacting with when he's yeah. saying, you know, why are you asleep and everything. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, we don't have enough in the text to 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 have definitive answers. Yeah. So yeah. you know, that's just see it the way you see it. I feel like this next thing I'm going to ask. I mean, I already know going into my question that it's unanswerable um, <laughs> because it's all hypothetical. But I don't know it. I mean, I totally understand Jesus wanting to have privacy in terms of this very intense mental, physical, emotional, spiritual battle that's going on with him supplicating to God for this outcome to change. But if there if there is this issue with the two groups of, of disciples being left alone and them giving in to their flesh, so to speak, by by the you know the hands of sleep why would he not i don't know as a rabbi as a teacher like bring them with him and like i don't know have them more intimately involved in this Mm. time of prayer that could have been a teaching moment or you know it would have been very almost visceral to experience someone praying with that kind of severity so i don't know i guess i'm just trying to get a picture of what was going on in jesus's head for leaving his disciples at their own hands rather than taking them with him yeah it's a good question i got nothing i have no idea it does it does seem like man that that would have been seemed like it would have been good to have them be a part you know but yeah, I, I don't know. But then I get uh, Jesus' previous words again where he, in the Gospels where he says, like, when you pray, you know, don't go out into the street corners. He's like, go into your room, like, close yeah. the door. Be It's like a, a very private kind of thing that he's that he's taught about what prayer should be. So I don't know. Yeah. Well, I hesitate to use that phrase. You know, this was something that was just between him and God. <laughs> Because so many people use that as an excuse for their disobedience yeah. or, you know, yeah. whatever. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, I, I, that definitely could be a real thing. They they would not have—well, ha, I guess what we have to believe is they would have had nothing to offer that would have been helpful for Jesus, and also that they would have experienced nothing— that would have been helpful for them. You got to believe that that's true, but it doesn't seem obvious. And yeah. I don't know why it's true, but I don't know. I got I got one more thing. Uh, okay. Th- this one, it's just kind of, it's a reference. I'm, I was taken by this, the series of three again with Jesus here in the garden yeah. and going to pray three times. And for some reason, I find that it matches really well with Jesus' temptation in the desert in Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11, because the Satan comes to him three times and says, like, if you are the Son of God, do this. If you are the Son of God, do that. And then the third one is like, if you will bow down and worship me. So it's almost, and that was before his or like right as his ministry was beginning and yes. here in the garden his ministry is ending so it's like yeah. i don't know there's like book a bookend of of uh Jesus being tested in a series of 3 it's kind of cool yeah you just made my day 
That really? was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that uh, never entered my head until you said it. So that is super cool. Super nice. cool. Nice. Too bad we aren't a little further along. We could end on that high note, right? Yeah, we could <laughs> spend the rest of the time trying to find the center of the chiasm. Chia- <laughs> That's right. If only. Yeah. All right. Anything else? No, uh, I better quit while I'm ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah, that was good. Super good. All right, so uh, we're going to read a little bit from John, going back to chapter 18, verses 2 and 3. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches, and weapons. Well, uh, I don't know. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, it seems, uh, that seems extreme. So, John, he's kind of filling in the other side of the story for us. We got Judas Iscariot, to be specific. Judas, he was familiar with this place, uh, and what did we call it? Gethsemane. He was familiar with it. Why? Because they'd all been there many times before. And uh, it, it was probably, I don't know, some sort of a common camping place for them during the festivals. So Judas had a good idea of where they would be that night. And he knew that he could lead, you know, the chief priests, Pharisees right to him. Except it wasn't the chief priests and the Pharisees. That isn't who he took with him. They were soldiers. They were officers. And they brought, you know, things, I guess, that would be expected. Come on, it's night. Lanterns, torches, whatever. But they also took weapons. Okay. Jesus doesn't seem like a scary figure, but whatever. The text says, check this out, Samuel. We just read in English, it was a band of soldiers. The underlying word here is cohort. Now, (laughs) just bear with me for a second. If we were talking about actual war and, you know, all this kind of thing, a cohort is a group of 600 men. (laughs) Now, I'm not not suggesting that that's what's happening here, but, in fact, I would say it's highly unlikely that there were 600, but it does suggest some significant number. And it's a significant number of men trained for war. This is crazy. And, and as we'll see uh, later, it gets referred to as a crowd. So whatever your mental image is of this moment when these guys are coming to get Jesus, you know, if you think it's Judas and, you know, like five soldiers or something like that, that's probably not the right image. There were probably a large number of men with lanterns, torches, and weapons, which, I mean, I don't know. That doesn't fit any of the imagery I had, you know, certainly most of my life. Now, you got to wonder, though, even at this moment, do you think it's possible Jesus is all, uh, not Jesus, Judas is already regretting what he's done? I mean, maybe, did he get some sort of sense that this was, I don't know, kind of getting a little out of control? 
Did he really know that the only reason they wanted this Jesus was to kill him? I don't know. Had he convinced himself that this was, you know, maybe just some sort of misunderstanding and he was, you know, he was going to be the the guy that was bringing them together to hopefully fix it? Or did he think that there was going to be some sort of peaceful solution? Or was he just plain disgruntled? You know, did he did he feel justified in approaching the situation this way because, you know, he felt like he'd been lied to or whatever? Was was he the only sane one of the bunch? I mean, we're never going to know what's really going on in his head. All we know is that it just doesn't end well. This Judas, no matter what you imagine going on inside him, whether it's good and and he thinks he's justified or he's just this awful creep of a human or whatever it is you think, ultimately in the story, Judas is a pitiful figure in every way from every side. It's just very sad. But anyway, that's where we're going this far. Samuel, you got anything with this bit? Just, uh, I think I know the answer to it, but I just ask it so that we're all in agreement when the text in John says band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priest and the Pharisees we should take that as those are the ones who are the corrupt individuals within those two camps because we have already interacted so many times with Pharisees who were wrestling in a good way with Jesus's teachings and his ministries and considerations of him being the Messiah and I mean, we've we've talked about way early on that the chief priesthood through like Herod and the Roman government getting involved that it kind of got bought out. Yeah, Sadducees. But that doesn't doesn't mean that there weren't also faithful ones within that group too. So the, sure, the, we should just take it as these are the ones who have lost the plot of God's story and are bent on revenge or yes. You know, exercising their power over other people. Yeah, or even as the high priest at some point has said, he he thinks it's actually for the benefit of all of the people that they destroy this one guy. Mm-hmm. It's it's crazy. Now, I, uh, while you were pointing that out, I did notice something else. Uh, it says band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests. Uh, just to say it, I don't I don't really know what the makeup of this group was. But there were actually soldiers in Israel. There were some soldiers that, that were under the direction, guidance of the chief priests, etc. So it could be that we've got a mixed group of soldiers, some of them from Rome and some of them from mm. Israel itself. I don't know that, but, you know, it's just, it's a thing, it's possible. That's interesting. I'm glad you brought that up because I was just... In my mind, I was picturing some of the chief priests, but that's not what the text says. And it's, I don't know, it's interesting that you've got two groups of soldiers and then the Pharisees. Like, how did they get roped into the <laughs> being a part of this group? Like, you would think it would just be, you know, authorities, so to speak, that's coming to try to arrest him. And Right. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? I mean, the one thing we know about the Pharisees, they, they were a passionate bunch. And for those who, who were on Jesus' side, I think that, you know, they never would have been a part of this, whatever. They were trying to keep their own lives safe, but they were staying out of it. 
But for those Pharisees that they felt like, well, think about it, because for all practical purposes, if anybody was going to put Jesus in a group, it would have been the Pharisees. Mm. He's most closely aligned with them out of everyone. So uh, they may have also, like, like their passion may have included, you're screwing it up for the rest of us kind of stuff, you know? So I don't know. But it is funny. Yeah, it does appear that they could have been actually included in the group or whatever. I don't know. I don't know, man. Well, it kind of feels like we're right in the middle of the story, but, you know, it's it, we're going to go ahead and break right here, Samuel, because we're just going to get to talking and we'll go way over. So, Yeah, I think it's a good stopping point because we haven't actually started the interaction between Judas and this group with Jesus. It, John is just setting up, you know, who now is entering into the the picture of the garden. Uh, so I think it's a cool way to start yeah. next week. Yeah, it's kind of cool. We we end with Judas and his merry band, you know, <laughs> like leaving to go find Jesus, and we'll pick up next time with Judas showing up with his merry band. So, yeah, it's good. All right, let's cut it. Okie dokie. Thank you for listening to the Okie Dokie Most podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at www.okidokimos.com. And if you'd like to get a hold of us, please send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. And until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.